Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. In 2015, PS307, an elementary school with a predominantly black and Latino student body in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Vinegar Hill, became a lightning rod for debates about racial integration, educational access, community relations, and class and power. PS307 was big news in Brooklyn, but it wasn't anything new. Debates and policy related to school segregation and desegregation go back centuries. And they've shaped the lives of millions of children and parents who have called Brooklyn home. In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we'll consider the tangled history of race, education, and access in Brooklyn. I understand that I, being a New York Times reporter, going into a school like that, immediately changed the dynamics of that school. That that is a school that becomes impossible to ignore, that becomes a school that um, officials have to pay attention to, and I can either hoard that resource with other parents who have those same resources, or I can share that resource and try to actually make a difference. Desegregating um, while tolerating white supremacy has produced statistical desegregation in some cases, but has often created a lot of inequality in new forms. William Wilson, to like name all of these people who, who may I mean, he, he essentially is because of him that we know who these people are, right? And like anything else, if you're not organized, if you're not going to fight, <laughs> you're not going to get. It's still happening now. Joining us to talk about the history of school segregation in New York City and Brooklyn are Nicole Hannah-Jones, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and Ansley Erickson assistant professor of history and education at Columbia Teachers College. Welcome both of you to Flatbush in Maine. Thank you. Nicole, you wrote a really remarkable long-form piece in New York Times Magazine a few months ago about PS307 and the changes taking place in the school in Vinegar Hill. I wonder, just give us a a lay of the land. Tell us what's been going on there. So PS307 has been uh, for several years now a majority black and Latino school, high poverty school, um, because it has a very small attendance zone. And the attendance zone is drawn around most of the buildings of the Farragut Houses, which is a public housing project in New York City. And um, not too far away, about a mile away, was another school that at one time had similar demographics to PS307. It was located in Brooklyn Heights, which, of course, is a very affluent part of the city, and began to be gentrified, and it flipped to a majority white, very wealthy school with very low poverty rate. And that school was bursting at the seams. And finally, last year, the New York City Public Schools refused to cram any more kindergartners into the school, and it put about 50 students on a waiting list and sent them, those students, to their other neighborhood school, which is PS307. 
And of course, one can imagine very quickly that turned into a big controversy. And, and when you say neighborhood school, PS 307 really was their neighborhood school, right? Many of their kids are now zoned there, living right around the corner in some cases from PS 307. So, Nicole, say more about that. While PS 307 zone was very small, I, I call it like a postage stamp zone because it was just around the Farragut houses, the PS 8 zone was quite large. And it was so large, largely because it served Brooklyn Heights, but it also served Dumbo and Vinegar Hill. But at the time it was drawn, Dumbo and Vinegar Hill were largely was, um, warehouses and, and industry, and there wasn't a lot of housing in there. But like seems like most of Brooklyn these days, it began to see a housing boom. You had all of these very affluent families who were moving in, but they were still part of this large attendance zone for PS3 for PS8 and PS307 zone remained very small. So when the district decides that it's going to rezone PS8 zone, it actually made sense um, to cut that zone in half and send all of those neighborhood children who many of them could actually overlook PS307 to their closest school. But um, though it was a logical thing politically, it was uh, pretty combustible. And there became a big battle about whether that rezoning should go through. How did this play out with the parents? Uh, What were some of their reactions? So there were these public meetings. um, At first at PSA, where PSA parents were first upset that their children had been waitlisted and sent to uh, PS307. And then once news of this potential rezoning came out, there were a lot of meetings to fight that rezoning. And yeah, you heard the same typical concerns about race without mentioning race, I would Mm say. Um, I mean, there were test scores, concerns about test scores, and the test scores at PS307 actually were not very good. So that um, that I understood, but kind of concerns about safety, though PS307 had no issues with safety. Um, People standing up saying the school had no resources when, in fact, it had offered way more than PS8 because PS8 had had to cut so much. So PS307 had a STEM magnet. Um, it was actually getting millions of dollars in additional funding for the STEM magnet. It had a Mandarin program. It had music. It had art. I mean, it really had everything that middle-class white parents say they want. Um, but those parents out of hand were rejecting coming into that school partially because it was located next to a housing project and mostly because most of the kids were black and Latino children from that housing project. And of course, then that made um, parents at Prius 307 very upset to hear their children and their school. They actually worked really hard to turn into a good school being treated that way. So can you tell us, Ansley, why do you think it's important to use the term segregation to describe um, what is happening now? Because there's such a long history that is associated with this term. And there's also a region that is that people tend to associate more more with the term, um, you know, the South. People think when they think the kind of historical memory of segregation, it is in the South and it is Jim Crow, like pre-1965, right? So why is it important to invoke a term with such a long history to talk about what's happening now? I think much of the American history of segregation is national. And so focusing first on regional distinctions has usually worked to let the North off the hook. If we talk only about the South, we're not looking at the actions of Northern administrative and political entities, right? So the New York City Board of Education, as it was then called in the 60s and 70s, the Department of Education now, makes myriad decisions that bear on the question of who gets to go to school where. They draw zone lines. They set school capacity. Somebody had to decide that it was okay to remove 
pre-K from PS8 to make space for more K kids at PS8, right? So all of those are choices that um, sometimes are made explicitly with segregation or the potential for desegregation in mind. Sometimes they might be made without it. But in either case, these are state actions that have huge bearing on where kids go to school today. And then if we bring history into it, it's impossible to consider, um, to, to draw a point in time in which historic decisions that were explicitly segregationist and are widely acknowledged to be so, such as FHA mortgages and redlining, for example. The decisions that were made in explicitly segregationist 30s and 40s generated wealth for white people and excluded that wealth generation for others. So I think we have to call it segregation to identify the choices that are people, people are making now and the impact of the historic choices. I think when we're talking about today, when we're talking about segregation, I think it's important to use that term because otherwise what, what most of the rhetoric around it today is saying that this is a matter of people's personal choices. It is a matter of housing choices. It is a matter of you know people who can afford to live in certain neighborhoods because they've worked for it and others who have not. Or it is a matter of a legacy from the past. I think it's important to use the word segregation today because Farragut parents don't have choice. They are not choosing to put their children in an all-poor, segregated school that, while it may have some resources, really struggles because of that concentration of poverty. If you look at New York City school children, um, particularly black children, who are the most segregated of all children, even though they're not the largest racial group in the city, um, they are, those parents are not choosing these poor, failing schools. They're not choosing to live in these poor neighborhoods that have been deprived of resources. I think there's a common belief among Americans that you have this very clear difference between the the North and the South, that in the South, what you're fighting is a sort of a de jure segregation, one that's imposed by law, and that there's something different going on in the North, this dif- a sort of de facto segregation, free of, um, of intent in a way, um, that, uh, in a way that's different from the South. What, how would you guys respond to that? So I really like the way James Baldwin defines this term, right? So he says that de facto segregation means that Negroes are segregated, but that nobody did it. And when he says that, what he's pointing out is the basic problem with the idea of de facto segregation, that it it excuses or um, ignores or in some ways erases causality. If you actually look at the history, clearly... um the, desegregation, the segregation that you find in the North was created through official policy, through government action from the federal level on down, um, through policy decisions that are ongoing. And so to call that de facto, I think, is actually just incorrect. And you look at when this usage really becomes popular, um, it's when the movement for integration starts coming North. And suddenly you have congressmen who were very, very gleefully happy to kind of uh, punish the South, who are now like, no, this this segregation we have up here, though in schools it's just as bad as the South, and housing is worse in the South, um, that this is a different kind of segregation that we uh, have no legal obligation to undo. So it becomes a tool, and it's a tool that we continue to embrace, except now we would say the segregation we see all over the country is all de facto, and therefore we have no legal or moral obligation to do anything about it. Ansley, maybe you could put desegregation into a broader context. Obviously, there have been efforts to desegregate schools across the country for several decades. Uh, how, how has that gone? Over the course of about 40 years of various kinds of efforts, um, the places that 
desegregated the most were metropolitan southern school districts where there was a combination of a joint city-county arrangement, meaning that urban and suburban residents were in the same school district, and court pressure for desegregation. And without those two things in tandem, often very little desegregation happened. So um, from the late 60s to the early 90s, it's the Southeast that goes from about three quarters of its African-American students in schools that are 90 to 100% black to about a quarter, right? A significant drop over the 30 years of active desegregation through court pressure. Um, but the North stays at about 50% throughout that time period. So one way to generalize is to say that queer desegregation has been the product of intensive legal pressure. It has happened statistically, but that's only been in a very, very few places. It's never been, it's never happened in New York like that. The other thing I would point out is that um, I wrote a book about Nashville, Tennessee, and one of the prompts to do that project was a conversation I had with a man who was um, in a high school graduating class of 1981, and therefore one of the first, one of the first people whose um, the bulk of his education was shaped by busing for desegregation in Nashville. And he, he answered the question about um, desegregation and integration by saying that he had been to desegregated schools, but that he had never really had an experience of integration. I would like, to, I would like for us to interrogate the notion of integration mm -hmm. a little bit more. It's not just that segregation is about power. It's that integration or our processes for desegregating have also always reflected unequal power. And so desegregating um, while tolerating white supremacy has produced statistical desegregation in some cases, but has often created a lot of inequality in new forms. Nicole, your interest in 307 is not just as a journalist or someone who is analyzing these arrangements of power and access to it. Tell us about your relationship to this school. Yes, so <laughs> I am a, a PS307 parent, and my husband and I enrolled our daughter in PS307 when she was in pre-K, and she just started first grade there um, two days ago. So um, it's, it's interesting. I've been writing about school segregation for probably more than a decade now, and always as someone who did not have to actually navigate uh, education systems myself, and had my child and moved to New York City when she was one, and now was in one of the most segregated school districts in the country. We ended up at 307 largely because we didn't want to pay for preschool, and they had just gotten a STEM grant that expanded their pre-K program to 100 seats, and most of our neighborhood schools had 16 to 32 seats before sibling preferences, et cetera, et cetera. So we picked them as number one and picked three other neighborhood schools and got into PS307. And then within a few months found ourselves uh, in the middle of an integration battle, which was very surreal considering that's what I cover. Why, and why was it important for you for your daughter to attend a school like 307? So for a few reasons. Um, I mean... I know very well all the research on segregated schools, and I pretty much have like made my, you know, my mission to write about um, the way the segregated schools harm children and how it's we'll never have an equal system as long as we allow this to persist. But at the same time, um, through my career, I've just run into so many people who are 
fighting against this thing, but in their own lives, making very different choices. And I just simply could not do that. I could not be someone who um, is castigating the system and then taking my privileged part in that system. Probably the most radical of my thinking, and it's the part that's the hardest for me to actually say out loud um, because it makes me feel like a bad parent, but I don't feel like my daughter deserves more. I just, um, I think she deserves a quality education, but I don't think that for luck of circumstance that she should be getting a better education than the kids in my school, my neighborhood who were not born to parents who were educated and who have been able to um, get middle class income. I understand that I, being a New York Times reporter, going into a school like that immediately changed the dynamics of that school. That that is a school that becomes impossible to ignore, that becomes a school that um, officials have to pay attention to, and I can either hoard that resource with other parents who have those same resources, or I can share that resource and try to actually make a difference. One of the things that really struck me about your article is that this, there was this moment when you talked about the idea of curated integration. Mm-hmm. When I think about desegregation, and and you even think about the conversations around PS307, it's that if you want white parents to come, it has to be a good school. What is that saying, though, right? Like, you're thinking about what that says. And white parents who are like, yeah, I know what kind of education those kids are getting over there. My kid's not going to get that education. What that's saying is that um, anything is okay for black and brown kids because they're going to be there. They don't have choice. And we don't care that much about their educational prospects. That integration is the only way we can break apart that caste. But it has to be actual integration. And this is what parents at PS307 were fighting for. But it really was about saying we want to have a school where there is a power is shared where we feel our kids' needs are met and comfortable, but that we're going to get the same resources as every other school. But not a sense where, I mean, kind of the way that um, it was reported was that they should just be happy that white parents would come there um, and that if they lost the school that they had built, that would be okay because they had the benefit of whiteness. That's not integration. Um, But integration in this country then requires that white people have to give up something. It's the only way it happens. It's the only way equality happens. Therefore, that's why it has not happened. Debates about race in public education in Brooklyn actually go back to the beginning of the 19th century. In Brooklyn, the first African school, as it was called, was founded in 1815 by a man named Peter Kroger, who offered evening and day classes out of his home on a little street near the Brooklyn Bridge called James Street that's no longer there anymore. And he actually started this school um, in response to the establishment of a public school in Brooklyn that was largely unwilling to teach people of color in it. By the 1830s and 40s, a system of public um, colored schools, as they were called at the time, um, had risen up in Brooklyn with one in downtown Brooklyn, one in Williamsburg, and one out in Weeksville. And then by the 1860s, we're starting to see the leaders of this black educational movement in Brooklyn begin to really look back and think about um, how to record the the genesis of this movement for posterity. And that brings us to our document today. So we're going to be looking at a letter written by a leader in the black community named William J. Wilson. Now, according to our research, William Joseph Wilson uh, was an educator. He was a journalist. He was a community organizer. He lived in Fort Greene. 
and this letter he's writing is addressed to a man named Henry Styles. Julie, tell us who who is Henry Styles. Henry Styles is a name very familiar to the nerdiest of Brooklyn history nerds like me, um, because he was the author of a large multi-volume history of Brooklyn that was published in the late 19th century, which to this day remains one of the few syntheses of Brooklyn's history. So he, I, I talk to him every day. <laughs> you know, and he is um, a familiar name at this institution because he was one of the first uh, librarians at uh, Brooklyn Historical yeah, Society. Yeah, one of the first founders, actually, yeah, of, yeah. of the institution. Um, so he, um, throughout the mid-19th century, was researching assiduously this book that he was writing. He was collecting information from people all over um, all over Brooklyn at the time. And one of the people who he solicited for information on his institution mm. was this man, William J. Wilson. Of course, we will have a copy of this on our show notes, but uh, we're going to kind of talk through some of the interesting features of this this document. So let's let's get into the letter. Let's get into some of the things that he is saying in this letter. Yeah, I'm going to start reading from it because I think that the first sentence that he chooses is a a great topic sentence. It really tells us a lot. He writes. Our colored public schools are legitimately a part of our public school system and would probably have come in the same numerical order with the other public schools did they not cover different districts. They are conducted under the same regulations, pursue the same studies, and are under as good tutorship as the most of them. You know, this is is a recurring theme throughout this document. There is an appeal to make the argument that our schools, these colored schools, William Wilson is saying, are just as good, they're just as legitimate, Um, the students are just as competent, they're receiving just as uh, strong an education. And I think it's an important um, strategy that he's deploying here. While William um, Wilson is, is, is ostensibly informing Dr. Stiles about, like, here's our school, here's what we do. The, the subtext to this, or the, the other kind of function of this, is to, to make a very strong argument for racial equality. Absolutely. But I think there's also something interesting about what's not in here, which is a debate about integration, yeah. right? So yeah. it's not even on his agenda here to quarrel with the idea of, yeah. a, of a colored school, which, you know, even the term that today right. sounds so problematic right. and anachronistic, right? right? Um, instead, he's focusing on the quality um, of education right. that is provided within um, this uh, this inherently separate system, right. and I mean, in it, what you know, another place where he's equally as sort of unequivocal is when he's describing the the, the teachers at at the at the mm-hmm. school. And mm-hmm. So he writes, and towards the end of it, um, it is just to remark that every teacher of this school, from its commencement, has been colored. And many of these receiving their education in this school and proving themselves as competent as any other of our public teach, which speaks well for the institution. So not only is he really articulating the competence and even the brilliance of the body of teachers that he cultivates at this school, he's also saying, and we're teaching the next generation of teachers. Yeah, and I think there's also an important role here of crediting black labor 
and the work of black people and black teachers, in particular black educators, to say that the brilliance coming out of our school is not because, you know, white teachers are coming to quote unquote raise our children up, that we are actually doing it ourselves. And I think it's it's an important statement that he's making. And, you know, I I, I think, you know, I imagine what it's like to have been a child in the mid 19th century, a black child going to school um, and how important it would have been for your teachers to see you in a certain way. We can't underestimate how damaging it would be for a student to learn from somebody who believed that they were inherently lesser than the teacher themselves. It, it really makes clear that schools don't stand on their own, that they're part of a network of institutions built by this self-reliant black community that has been emerging in Brooklyn since even before slavery ended in New York State in 1827. And then the other thing is that the black teachers had skin in the game. Yeah. They had total interest yeah. in providing the most excellent education that they could for their community in order to bring about sort of a larger, what what at the time would have probably been called community uplift. That's absolutely true. And, you know, there is a, a theme of respectability politics running through this, this letter as well. I mean, the appeals that we are just like and just as good. I think the contemporary understanding of respectability politics, of course, has connotations of reinforcing external standards that you know and appealing to external standards in a way that conservatism yeah yeah yeah, Mm -hmm. you know in 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 a sense but it's important because it was a strategy to counter the images that that had been portrayed of black people and of black children in particular Um, and so it was important to say no our children are just as competent Mm -hmm. our teachers are just as competent Mm -hmm. Um, so it was to challenge that stereotype it was also to uphold internal community standards right so there's a class thing happening here as well and a gender thing, right? Gender so thing, yeah. you know, this letter, like a like a lot of nineteenth century letters, um, has a lot of names and institutions mm-hmm. mentioned in it. Um, you know, we sometimes when we look at histories from the nineteenth century, they don't read the way that we would think about history books today. They read a little bit more like a like a genealogy, if That's you right. will. That's and right. here in this letter, we have many many names mentioned, and many of them. female names Mm -hmm. right and so this is an institution that is really um, emphasizing the role of female educators just as much as male educators one of the things that strikes me about this letter this genealogy so the genealogy uh, the genealogical approach whatever this is the genealogy like naming all of these people there is not much by way of narrative Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. Um, so it is not the most interesting document to read. But like much of the kind of his, uh, you know, historical documents from this time period, the story is not what is explicitly expressed on the document, right? Like you you have to kind of like read between the lines. And the name dropping that's going on here um, is is speaking to these kind of networks, you know, benevolent associations, the ways that people of African descent were kind of supporting each other. Churches. Um, their churches. Yep. The, he's like, you know, he, he goes into this list of people who are like establishing trade and traveling to Liberia. I mean, there's a kind of cosmopolitanism that, that is reflected here. And then the naming of all of the people who work in these schools. I mean, what's really interesting is like Henry Styles wouldn't have known these people. Yep. 
right? You're absolutely right. Um, yep. So, like, there is the name dropping, and he's saying, like, why these people are important. But then he's like, and then there's Miss Brown and Miss Laura Williams and Miss Julia Jackson. And I think that speaks well of William Wilson to, like, name all of these people who, who may – I mean, he, he essentially is because of him that we know who these people are, right? I mean, we talk a lot on the podcast and here at BHS about the people who are lost from the historical mm-hmm. record or the ways that we have to kind of put together composite experiences because we don't know the particular experiences of a person. And it almost is like William Wilson knew the the import of yeah. putting these names on the record, knowing that these are things that could be published in a book, that these would survive the test of time. There's like a very um, sort of um, powerful uh, statement going on here, I think, in this, in this letter. In New York City, like in so many other places, many different constituents shape the process of educational opportunity and educational policy. And in this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to one voice, that of Mary Barksdale, from the Sarita Daftari Steele Collection of East New York Oral Histories. Barksdale um, has lived in the East New York neighborhood of Brooklyn since the 1960s, and she was also a local school board representative and the president of the Parent Teachers Association in her son's school. In this clip, she talks about the uh, struggles over equal access to resources in education that often bubbled up over the debates about busing and school integration. In this clip, she talks about, just to give you a sense of the the kind of lay of the land, because the the place is so important here to understanding this struggle. She's describing East New York, and East New York is a, is a fairly large neighborhood in, in East Brooklyn. The northern part of East New York and the southern part of East New York were, at the time, predominantly white. I think it was a little bit more mixed in the southern part. Black folks were concentrated in the middle of, of, of East New York. So when she's talking about north and south and middle, that's what she's right. she's referencing. So middle and center, you'll hear her say that yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to play this first clip. One of the issues was, I think it was busing. And they wanted, to, busing was beginning to be something that they wanted to begin to deal with. And uh, of course there was always a re- reaction to that, especially people from the north who were, primarily the, the white population and working class white people who were there, not all of them, you know, because they understood the, the, the problems that were, that were being faced with the children who were going to schools that were in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then you had the kids on the south, south end, which is also, they, 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 had some, they had some people who lived in, it was a mixed neighborhood, but there was areas on the south that was predominantly white. And uh, we would have those kind of conflicts with them. And it, it wasn't just the color thing. It was the question of your, your, your class, you know. Mm-hmm. People who were middle class, you know, saying, I don't want those kids from the middle, you know, who, who lived in the middle, who they considered to be less than, you know, uh, all of the poorer class. Mm-hmm. Working class, poor class, and they didn't want to, you know, cross. It's like it was, it was to me. It was like the South in a sense. You know, to me, this clip hammers home the 
Oh, this is such a complicated topic, isn't it? <laughs> because it, there is so much nuance to this one neighborhood mm-hmm. in Brooklyn and so much specificity to the way that space shapes access to educational resources. And then if we pull our lens out, there are hundreds of neighborhoods in New York City. And it really just, wow, it's such a challenging yeah, like you, you can't. Um, this is such a hyper-localized yeah. problem that the solutions really require the input on this local level. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was, there were, you know, there's a lot of interesting um, insights that I think Mary brings in this clip. And one is she's not really seeking to find fault with the neighbors in the north or the south. I mean, she's clear that they went to battle, right? Yeah. And she's frank about yeah. their racism, yeah. right? Like yeah. that they thought that the people from the center were, I think she said, less than. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, she's like, I, I get it. Right. You know, like, I get yeah. what they were thinking. And then for her, you know, and, and Mary's parents migrated from the South, yeah. you know, when you read her, her bio. And for her to say, for me, it was like the South. Yeah. I mean, this is, this, is, this is kind of really important because a lot of us think when we think of the fights for desegregation or integration that, that this was a purely Southern mm-hmm. problem. And here's Mary saying, like, you know, to me, this was like the South. Like, mm-hmm. so just clear understanding of the dynamics uh, of, of the challenges that, that she was facing as a, as a parent. And she also importantly raises the issue of class. Yeah. That this isn't just about race, that this is about class. And I, and I really kept thinking about the resources that it would take somebody to really agitate um, and really um, advocate on yeah. the part of their, their children. Um, how that would shape one's, you know, one's success or failure yeah. um, in yeah. the system. And I think to that end, let's continue with the clip and hear the next part. Not, all, not everybody felt the same way. I mean, they were just fighting for their schools. They felt like we were fighting for ours, you know, trying to get whatever we could, which we, we thought was going to be better for our kids. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, the people who have the power to, to deal with some of this stuff, you know, uh, they were trying to back off, not so much back off as they would react to those of us who were most vocal. Mm-hmm. And we would have to struggle with them as well. It was, it was very hard. And I remember, oh, in the center, well, the other problem was uh, the racial thing. And the center was always for integra- integration. And integration meant that people from across not only color lines, but class lines as well. Mm-hmm. And we used to discuss those things and try to bring those things out when we went to these meetings and, under, and make it clear that we understood what was going on and the fact that the powers that be had to begin to deal with those people who needed it the most. And when I say needed it the most, they all needed it, but there were certain emphases that were put in certain areas more so than put in other areas. Mm-hmm. And uh, like anything else, if you're not organized and if you're not going to fight, <laughs> you're not going to get it's still happening now. I mean, it's very clear that Mary is a consummate organizer, that she was really good at what she did. She was a good communicator. Um, and that, 
I mean, I, I think she's really honest about the fact, about the effort that it took yeah, for you know, her to effect change. And when she was like, it was hard. So this is the part where she is talking about the nature of the struggle. And she says the battles with the other parents mm. who are, are trying to protect their interests, you know, the white parents trying to protect their interests, the maybe middle class parents are trying to protect their interests. And then she says, but in the meantime, you know, we had to also contend with these these, these officials. Yeah. And we had to we had to battle them as well. And I think that this is this is kind of like the the nature of the the anti-racist struggle mm. right that you have to fight a two-front yep. war yep. right so like you 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 understand that you have to go after the people who control the resources but the way the resources are so distributed and in a disproportionate way that any advocacy for redistribution of the resources or more equitable distribution of the resources is going to create opposition among other people who are receiving that disproportionate share, right? So, like, you, you, even though, like, you're all in this situation because of how the resources are structured, because of these systemic forces, you can't just fight structure. Well, and you see this in PS 307, yeah. right? I mean, there is the question of the maybe, like, lack of transparency that mm-hmm. the Board of Education had toward all parents involved, um, in that, um, but then there is also that the sort of like the, the sort of the, the veiled um, language of racism yeah, yeah. Um, coming from right. parents who are concerned about sending their kids to three hundred seven. It's multiple. It's multiple fronts. Yeah, it's of course yeah. your responsibility yeah. to 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 advocate for right. the resources, but at what point is it your responsibility to engage in moral suasion? Yeah. At its core, this episode is really about children, children learning, the places that they learn, and the people that they learn from. And in that spirit, we wanted to sit down and chat with one of the key people on our team of educators here at Brooklyn Historical Society. We are happy to welcome to Flatbush in Maine, Shirley Brown Aline, who is the manager of teaching and learning pre-K through fifth grade. Shirley, welcome to Flatbush in Maine. Thank you so much for having me. So, Shirley, we want to hear a little bit about this program called CASA. So, first of all, what does CASA stand for? Cultural After School Adventures, which is a generous grant funded by the New York City Council. So, what what does CASA entail here at BHS? Here at Brooklyn Historical Society, we use CASA as an after-school program that is free for students throughout New York City, where students are doing deep dive um, investigative research about their neighborhood based off specific themes, and then they create a project, either a three-panel um, exhibition that lives on in their school, or they write a book. This last cohort, the students all said, where are we? We don't see ourselves, so we're going to write a book about ourselves. And when I heard that, I was like, wait a minute, they're going to do what? And it's like, no, they wrote a book about um, enslaved and free Africans, Eleni Lenape, a little bit about the Dutch and the English. And when I first read it, I have to admit, my very first reaction was, no one's going to believe us that they wrote the book. Wow. Um, (laughs) It really is so powerful. And all of them have taken such a now sense of pride in history, something that a lot of them felt was boring. 
um, their parents told me if they heard nothing else about school, they heard about what happened in young, as, as a young scholar in the CASA program, what they did. I was recently looking at Brooklyn Historical Society's calendar of events coming up, and a name popped out to me that made me say, I have to attend that event. Who's that? It's the name Pat Kiernan, who is one of my favorite TV personalities on New York One. Oh, okay. And he'll be interviewing Bill Helmreich, who is the author of The Brooklyn Nobody Knows, An Urban Walking Guide. Bill Helmreich is a professor at City College, um, and he actually walked all 816 miles of streets in oh, Brooklyn. Oh, wow. So maybe nobody knows Brooklyn as well as Bill Helmreich. So we're going to hear those two speaking at BHS on Wednesday, October 5th at 6.30 p.m. Tickets are $10, and you can find the link on our show notes. That sounds like a cool event. I'm I, I, I want to hear what uh, he's found walking all of these. I just, I just want to hear how that was done. Like, when was it done? Like, I how know. long did it take him? I know. That's, that's really I wanted to walk the entirety of Brooklyn's waterfront, all 131 oh, wow. miles, but I haven't done it yet. Okay. The event that stood out to me um, this October is called Nerd No Longer Niche and influential industries growing pains. And this is part of BHS's long ongoing um, Let's Talk Feminism series. And, um, you know, this is, you know, we're in an age where people have kind of celebrated the, the triumph of the nerds and nerd culture, you know, certainly in tech, in entertainment, comic books, comic book movies, Star Wars, iPhones, Apple, all that stuff. Um, but what tends to be ignored in this triumphant story are the people within the nerd community who are still on the margins or oftentimes targeted even within the community. And so this panel is bringing together a group of, of superstar women in the nerd community to talk about sexism and some of the challenges and triumphs that they have had. And that panel includes Susanna Polo, the founder of the Mary Sue, Jill Pantozzi, the nerdy bird, uh, Cynthia Francillon of Black Girl Nerds, and Amy Imhoff of Shoes and Starships. And this discussion is going to be moderated by Angelique Roger, uh, Vice President of External Affairs at the Ms. Foundation for Women. So um, again, that is a Monday, October 24th at 7 p.m. And you can get your ticket information on our show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guests, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ansley Erickson, and Shirley Brown-Eline. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts we've talked about, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.